Chapter One of the Astonishing History of Troy Town by Sir Arthur Thomas Quillacooch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter One, in which the reader is made acquainted with a state of innocence, and the meaning of the word Cumilfo. Any news tonight? Asked Admiral Buzzer, leading a trump. Hush, my love," interposed his wife timidly, with a glance at the vicar. She liked to sit at her husband's left, and laid her small cards before him as so many tributes to his greatness. "'I will not hush, Emily. I repeat, is there any news to-night?' Miss Limpany, his hostess, and vis-à-vis, finding the Admiral's eye fierce upon her, coughed modestly, and announced that twins had just arrived to the postmistress. Her manner, as she said this, implied that, for aught she knew, they had come with the letters." The vicar took the trick, and gathered it up in silence. He was a portly, antique gentleman, with a fine taste for scandal in its proper place, but disliked conversation during a rubber. "'Twins, eh?' growled the Admiral. "'Just what I expected. She always was a wasteful woman.' "'My love,' expostulated his wife. Miss Limpany blushed. "'Now come to the workhouse,' he went on, "'and serve him right for making such a marriage.' "'I have heard that his heart is in the right place.' repeated Miss Limpany. "'But he used—' "'Eh, ma'am?' "'It is of no consequence,' said Miss Limpany, with becoming bashfulness. "'It's only that he always used, in sorting his cards, to sit upon his trumps. That always seemed to me—' "'Oh, does so,' replied the Admiral. "'And now it's twins. Bless the man. What next?' It was in the golden age, before Troy became demoralised, as you shall hear. At present, he ought to picture the drawing-room of the Mrs. Limpany, arranged for an evening.' the green rep curtains drawn, the Book of Beauty disposed upon the central table, the ballad music on the piano, and the Admiral's double bass in the corner. Six wax candles were beaming graciously on cards, tea-cakes and ratafias, on the pictures of the first drive and the orphan's dream, the photographic views of Troy from the harbour, the opposite hill, and one or two other points, and finally the noted oil-painting of Miss Limpany's papa, as he appeared shortly after preaching an assize sermon. Above all, the tea-surface was there, the famous set in real silver presented to the late Reverend Limpany by his flock, and Miss Priscilla, she at the card-table, wore her best brooch, with a lock of his hair arranged therein as a fleur-de-lis. I wish I could convey to you some of the innocent mirth of those evenings in Troy, those noctes, those noctes limpenianae, when the ladies brought their cap-boxes, though the buzzers and limpenies were but semi-detached neighbours, and the admiral and his wife insisted on playing against each other, so that the threepenny points never affected their weekly accounts. Those were happy days, when the young men were not above singing The Death of Nelson, or joining in a glee, and arming the young ladies home afterwards. In those days, Hawkins' slip had not yet become the Victoria Key, and we talked of the Rope Walk, what we now say, Marine Parade. Alas, our tastes have altered with Troy. Yet we were vastly genteel. We even had our shibboleth, a verdict to be passed before anything could hope for toleration in Troy. The word to be pronounced was Camilfo, and all that was not Camilfo was anathema. So often did I hear this word from Miss Limpany's lips that I grew in time to clothe it with an awful meaning. It meant to me, as nearly as I can explain, all things sanctioned by the principles of the Great Exhibition of 1851, and included, as time went on, 
crochet at Macassar's, art in the style of, of the Greek slave, elegant extracts and the British poets as edited by Gilfillan, corkscrew curls and prunella boots, album verses, quadrille dancing and the deux temps, popular science, proposals on the bended knee, conjuring and variety entertainments, the sentimental ballad, the proprieties, etc., etc., etc. The very spirit of this word breathed over the limpany drawing-room to-night, and Miss Priscilla's lips seemed to murmur it as she gazed across to where her sister, Lavinia, was engaged in a round game with the young people. These were Admiral Buzzer's three daughters, Sophie, Jane, and Calypso, the last named after her father's old ship, and young Mr. Mogridge, the amusing collector of customs. They were playing with Ratafias for counters. Ratafias were comme il faut, and peals of guileless laughter from time to time broke in upon the grave silence of the whist-table. For always on such occasions, in the glow of Miss Limpany's wax candles, youth and age held opposite camps, with the centre-table as debatable ground. Nor, until the rubble was finished, and the round game had ended in a seemly scramble for Ratafias, would the two recognise each other's presence, save now and then by a "'Hush, if you please, young people,' from the elder sister, followed by a whispered, "'What spirits your dear girls enjoy?' from Mrs. Buzzer's ear. But at length the signal would be given by Miss Priscilla. "'Come, a little music, perhaps, might leave a pleasant taste. What do you say, Vicar?' Upon which the vicar would regularly murmur, "'Say, rather, would gild refined gold, Miss Limpany?' And the admirable, as invariably broke in with, "'Come, Sophie, remember the proverb about little birds that can sing and won't sing?' This prelude having been duly recited, the Misses Buzzer would together trip to the piano, on which the two younger girls, in duet, were used to accompany Sophia's artless ballads. The performance gained a character of its own from a habit to which Calypso clung of counting the time in an audible aside, as thus. Sophia, singing, "'Oh, breathe but a whispered command!' Calypso, one, two, three, four. Fear, I'll lay down my life for thee. Calypso, one, two, three, four. The effect of which upon strangers has been known to be paralysing, though we who were come il faut pretended not to notice it. But Sophie could also accompany her own song, such as, "'Would you love me then as now?' and "'I'd rather be a daisy,' with much feeling. She was clever, too, with the watercolour brush, and to her we owe that picture of HMS Calypso in a storm, which hangs to this day over the Admiral's mantelpiece. I could dwell on this evening for ever, not that the company was so large as usual, but because it was the last night of our simplicity. With the next morning we passed out of our golden age, and then the foolishness of our hearts welcomed the change. It was announced to us in this manner. The duets had been beaten out of Miss Limpany's piano, an early collard with a top like a cupboard, fluted in pink silk and wearing a rosette in front. The performers, on retiring, had curtsied in acknowledgment of the vicar's customary remark about the three graces. The admiral had rung from his double bass the sounds we had learnt to identify with elfin merriment, though suggestive, rather, of seasick mutineers under hatches. And our literary collector, Mr. Moggridge, was standing up to recite a trifle of his own, Flung off, as he explained, not pruned or polished. The hush in the drawing-room was almost painful, for in those days we all admired Mr. Moggridge, as the poet tossed back a stray lock from his forehead, flung an arm suddenly out at right angles to his person, 
and began sepulchrally. Maiden! Here he looked very hard at Miss Lavinia Limpany. Maiden, what dost thou in the chill churchyard, beside yon grassy mound? The night hath fallen, the rain is raining hard, damp is the ground. Mrs. Buzzer shivered, and began to weep quietly. Maiden, why claspest thou that cold, cold stone against thy straining breast? Tell me, what dost thou at this hour alone? The lambs have gone to rest. The maiden lifted up her tearful gaze, and thus she made reply. My mother, sir, is— But the secret of her conduct remains with Mr. Moggridge, for at this moment the door opened, and the excited head of Sam Buzzer, the admiral's only son, was thrust into the room. "'I say, have you heard the news? The bower is let!' "'What?' All eyes were fixed on the newcomer. The vicar woke up. Even the poet, with his arms still at right angles, and the verse arrested on his lips, turned to stare incredulously. "'It's a fact! I heard it down at the Man of War Club meeting, you know!' he exclaimed. "'Goodwin Sandys is his name. The Honourable Goodwin Sandys, brother to Lord Sinkport. And what's more, he's coming by the midday train to-morrow!' The poet's arm dropped like a railway signal. There was a long pause, and then the voices broke out altogether. "'Only fancy!' "'There, now! The bower let at last! An honourable, too! What's he like?' "'Are you sure? Well, I never did!' "'Miss Tempany!' gasped the Admiral at length. "'Where is your burke?' It lay between the cathedrals of England and gems of modern art, under the stereoscope. Miss Lavinia produced it. "'Let me see,' said the Admiral, turning the pages. "'Sinkboard, Sinkboard. Ah, here we are. "'George St. Leonard's Goodwin Sands, Fourth Baron. <laughs> "'Here it is. "'Only brother, Frederick Augustus Hyth Goodwin Sandys, "'born 1842. Married.' "'Married?' "'1876. Geraldine, eighth daughter of Sheil O'Halloran of Kilmacuddy Court, County Kerry. "'Blank space for issue. "'Arms, ghouls, a bar since... <laughs> "'Well, upon my word!' "'I'm sure,' sighed Mrs. Buzzer, after the excitement had cooled a little, "'I'm sure I only hope they will settle down to our humble ways.' "'Emily,' snapped her husband, "'you speak like a fool. Pooh! "'Let me tell you, ma'am, that our ways in Troy are not humble.' Outside, in Miss Limpany's back garden, the Laurestinus bushes sighed as they caught those ominous words. So might Eden have sighed, aware of its serpent.' End of chapter 1